What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. On today's show, we have Lindsay Gibbs, a reporter at Think Progress, and me. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. Shereen and Brenda are traveling after having both presented. Shereen keynoted yesterday at the Soccer and Social Justice Symposium at Dickinson College. And Amira is hopefully in bed right now because she's feeling sick and had to cancel last minute. So Lindsay and I, we're going to try to hold it down today. As always, we want to thank our patrons who supported this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down Possible. We are so grateful. If you'd like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. You can pledge as little as one per month, but if you donate a little bit more, you can access exclusives like an extra Patreon-only segment or a monthly newsletter. So, it has been one hell of a week. (laughs) It has been... It has been an absolutely terrible week in so many ways. And so on today's show, we're basically going to devote the bulk of our time to talking about the many excuses that abusers, most of whom are men, and their enablers use to shield them from criticism. We'll talk about Brett Kavanaugh and probably Jameis Winston and Cristiano Ronaldo and maybe Addison Russell and whoever else comes up in conversation. Who knows? Maybe a little, I don't know, Urban Meyer or some Michigan State or even the Mavericks. We could really just go in so many directions. Thank you, sports, for all of that. So maybe we'll also get into sexist, racist, anti-Semitic media and the people who cover for them. I don't know. Stay tuned to find out. (laughs) Then I was lucky to get to sit down with the legend. I actually capitalized that in my head. The legend, Mary Carrillo, a couple weeks ago. I mentioned this on the last episode. Well, this week, you all will hear a condensed, edited version of our nearly 45-minute chat. If you're a patron of this program on any level, you will, by the time you're hearing this episode, have gotten access to the full interview as our September Patreon-only segment, so sign up to hear that. Of course, we'll cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout-outs to women who deserve shout-outs, and telling you what is good in our worlds, because there is some stuff that is good (laughs) in our worlds. Okay, first, though, before we get into all the shit, and there's so much shit, let's talk about something nice. Lindsay, your Carolina Panthers signed Eric Reed this week. How are you feeling about this? I mean, it was just the timing of it. It came out like <laughs> I'm sitting there and I was helping Think Progress cover the Kavanaugh hearings this week. So I was writing about they, them. It was on Thursday. It, it, I think it was during Dr. Ford's testimony <laughs> that like this news broke. And I was like, not now. Not now. Cannot deal with this now. So yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a good sign in the sense that this would never, ever, ever would have happened under Jerry Richardson. So if in case you, you guys don't know, Eric Reed is the one of the first players to kneel alongside Colin Kaepernick, and he's done it ever since. And he's a very good uh, free agent safety that most agree could be like a starting safety on most teams. But since becoming a free agent at the end of last year, he hasn't been signed to a team. And we're a few weeks into the season now. The Panthers old owner Jerry Richardson was very 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 racist (laughs) and awful so uh, he was actually forced to sell the team earlier than he intended to after I believe it was Sports Illustrated it was yeah did an investigation into you know how horrible he was so, you know, anybody who's followed the Panthers closely knows, you know, that was no surprise to find that out. But I've had Tepper, who's the guy who came in, you know, he's, he's, you know, 
got venture capitalist money and I, you know, I, he used to have like brass balls on his desk. So, like, you know, there's been some question <laughs> as to whether or not like he's actually better, but this does make me feel like it's a good step for the franchise, right? Like it makes me feel better in that way. And, you know, Eric Reed's just a great guy. Eric Reed's a great guy. He's a great player. And I'm glad that the Panthers are a team that is, you know, embracing this. I mean, this was, purely a football decision and that's good that's what it should be that's exactly what it should be like he's by far the best free safety out there on the market and he should be signed because we have no safety like it should have taken this long I don't give the Panthers like a pat on the back for it or anything but it just is uh, you know I'm excited to have Eric Reed on the field and off the field for the Panthers and I'm excited for what it says that we don't have a racist man running the team anymore feels better yeah I mean I'll just give them a tiny little pat because it does feel in some ways like crossing the picket line or something in this case the owners being the picketers. So, you know, in that way, it does matter. I haven't read up yet to see. I know that I'm sure it's Michael McCann wrote a piece at Sports Illustrated. I know it's at Sports Illustrated about what this means for Kaepernick's, you know, collusion case. But as far as they get a little tiny pad, I was very happy to see Eric Reed signed. I think that'll be great. And a little boost to this NFL season that I actually don't care anything about. Okay. And now on to the show. Okay, so, Lindsay, here we are. (laughs) Do you want to get us started on this hellscape that we are living in right now? Yeah, so I'm going to be honest. I've been having a very, very, very hard time focusing on anything this week that wasn't these Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And I think watching Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony on Thursday is, while I was watching it, it was one of those moments where I knew I would never, ever forget. You know, this moment or where I was or, you know, some of the things she said. I mean, some of the things that have really just stuck with me, Jess, were her talking, her remembering the laughter that they had. um, Indelible on the hippocampus. I feel like I'll never forget. Indelible on the hippocampus. Yeah. So in case anyone who wasn't listening, she is also like she's a psychology professor. So she was kind of giving expert witness testimony to her own personal testimony during this. It was really fascinating by talking about like how the memory works. And, you know, another thing I know, Jess, you were talking about this. It was the fact that so many years later, you know, 30 years later, she was fixated on getting a second front door, you know, and and that was what made her end up telling her husband and telling all these people because she she still needed that second front door in order to feel comfortable. And another thing that just keeps sticking with me, and this is going to, we're going to talk a lot today about, you know, gender dynamics and, you know, abuser dynamics. But one of the things she just kept saying was, I wish I could be more helpful. You know, she was so polite during this hearing. She was so accommodating during this hearing. She seemed shocked when anyone gave her a break or offered, you know, or, or, you know, deferred to her in any way. She came in here completely ready to just try and make everyone else feel better about what she was telling them. And I think it was striking. And it was a striking contrast to Brett Kavanaugh's testimony, who went after her and his anger and explosiveness and cruelness. I mean, he was cruel to the people who were questioning him. And he was, especially the women, he was just awful, awful. (laughs) Like, there was just... There was nothing about him that came across as a good person. And there's there's this conversation that always happens when, especially when it's been a long time since an alleged assault. And it's, you know, well, shouldn't we forgive this person? Shouldn't we be able to to move on? And I just kept watching this and I was like, not if someone it's someone like Brett Kavanaugh who hasn't done any of the work. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, this isn't even someone who's saying what she's saying is terrible. I'm so sorry this happened to her. It wasn't me. And I can tell you why it wasn't me. But like, you know, this is a real problem in society. And, you know, we need to deal with it. This was someone who was just so 
aghast <laughs> that he was being challenged in any way that we saw him just having a complete breakdown on national television. And as I like to say, you definitely want a Supreme Court justice who completely <laughs> breaks down under pressure. You know, that's definitely what I'm looking for. You know, somebody's making rules. But look, let's start here. Because there's a lot of, as you mentioned up top, we're going to take this conversation to a lot of different places. But I have to start it with Kavanaugh and with the way he used women and women's sports and all the women in his life as a shield. I mean, he didn't just do the I have a mother, so I can't be a rapist defense. <laughs> he said, you know, I have a wife and I have daughters. I have friends. Here is the name of all my friends. He literally listed list- them. Literally he listed, listed his, them. <laughs> he listed his female friends by first name. And this is the same man who had just, you know, in his other hearings before these allegations surfaced, he had literally brought a women's basketball team and ta- that he coached and had them sit Girls. front row. Girls. Yes, you're right. Girls basketball team. At his very first, when Trump first introduced him as the nominee, you know, he brought his wife and daughters. He talked a lot about them. And he also talked then about coaching girls you know, basketball. The way he has used from the very first moment we met him as a Supreme Court nominee, his relationships with women and the fact that he coaches girls sports as a proof that he is a good person has really off put me. And it's it's been staggering. And we see it happen in so many ways. You know, Urban Meyer can't be a bad person. He can't be an enabler because he has written respect women in the locker room. You know? Right. Like, there's just there's all these <laughs> examples of it. But you wrote a really great piece on this for the Huffington Post. So I just kind of wanted to start with you. I mean, what struck you the most about this, Jess? Yeah, I kept thinking about the girls basketball team. So I burned it a couple weeks ago. And I used your tweets, Lindsay to do it. Uh, we're all the, we were on the same page about I appreciate, yeah. <laughs> feeling it, feeling that at the time that he did it. And of course, the context of why he did that then is he was already using them to fight back against the idea that he would, as a justice on the Supreme Court rule against women's rights. Right. That, that, that was a criticism going in. And the very day that he brought the girls basketball team in for the, on the in the original hearing was a day that they talked about Roe v. Wade and brought up the emails where he actually had said that he didn't think it was settled law, which what he he's a liar. I think we should like throw that out there. Like one of the things in these hearings is that he just lies whenever he needs to in order to make his case for something. And so Roe v. Wade was one place where he had said, oh, it's settled law. And then they brought up these emails where he had said they weren't right or that it wasn't settled law on the same day that he brought these girls in to sit behind him. And so he brought them up again. And I've been thinking about them because so much of the conversation over the last week and a half since Dr. Ford's story came came out is that, you know, it very quickly moved from whether or not Kavanaugh did it to this discussion of, well, all boys do this. Right. There was this excuse of this is just what high school boys do. It doesn't mean anything about them as men. This whole narrative of who cares what happens to high school girls. And there are teenage girls pushing back in social media, writing op-eds, saying, like, we matter, too. And I kept thinking about these girls that he had brought in to the room before, you know, statistically they're already survivors of sexual assault among that group. When they go to college, their chances go up. Certainly some of them will be if they are not already. That's just a sad fact about the world. And then he brought up the team in his opening statement after he had gone through, you know, the list, his mom, his daughters, his wife, the law clerks, like all the different women that he brought up. He brought up the team and he brought up the team specifically to say, I'm very sad because I'll probably never be able to coach high school girls again, which someone pointed out the irony that that he'd lose that job but still get to be a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> like, that has right, higher yeah. standards. <laughs> um, uh. But okay. But he didn't take that opportunity at all to say anything about the girls themselves. You know, he wanted to tell us, and I'm sure that it was not an easy 10 days for him. I'm sure this has been incredibly jarring and shocking for someone who has so much privilege and hasn't had to be held accountable for lots of things in his life. I'm imagining what does it mean for those girls to hear this conversation about them and how they don't matter. Like the thing that their coaches, that Ford says that he did to her, like that that's not a big deal. And so he only brought them up to talk about himself and to, to fear for his own future. And it just was so, for me, that was just so telling of as to what it is he's actually taking away from all of this, 
which really has nothing to do with these women and these girls that he likes to use to cloak himself. And it's just another example. I mean, that's just so common for us to have to listen to this. I think I made a quip in the piece about I'm the son of a mother. (laughs) Right, yeah. Like, you know, often we get the I have daughters, that kind of thing. The one where they, the accident of nature happened instead of the fact that they're all sons of mothers. I don't know. I just feel like I I don't even know what to think about all of this and just the amount of excuse that he used with other than talking and really lying about the woman from his yearbook, Renata. If you don't know about this, I'm just amazed at anyone who doesn't know everything about this. But in case you don't, in the yearbook, which came up a lot, he went to an all-boys Jesuit prep school. And in the yearbook, multiple of the guys, including... A substantial portion of the football team called themselves Renata alumnus, which means they are the alums of Renata, the implication being that they had slept with her. Um, She didn't know about this until like last week when asked by a reporter. But he told us all that this was they just wanted her included in the group. Right. Like they tried. He tried to play it off as like this was an innocent thing that they did for their friend. But he felt really bad about it. She was literally the only woman that he actually I think he might have said he felt sorry for Ford. Maybe he said a couple things about her. Well, his daughter wanted to pray for her. He made a yes. big deal about that. He cried which, about that. Yeah. He cried about yeah. that and calendars. It's It was all very strange in a lot of ways. But, I mean, what do you say to all this? And the other thing I want to bring up, and I, I'd love to hear your thing about this. I'm sure you had similar thoughts he kept trying to tell us he was a good person because he was on a high school sports team okay <laughs> yes okay, okay I, they're, like, they're t- <laughs> I don't even i kept being like that's literally not helping that does not make it was really funny like one of the times he was talking about like how he couldn't have drank this one certain weekend because it was football camp and i was like oh yeah you know that like high school football and parties are two things that never go together i know <laughs> like- i know it's so yeah, wild. Every, it was bizarre. It was so bizarre. And I tweeted this out, but I don't, if people probably don't remember, I don't, I feel like you and I, and we're probably like sad encyclopedias about this stuff, but it was two years ago, just two years ago, that Columbia Wrestling, Amherst, I want to say track and field, and there was a so- Harvard soccer. Oh, the, yes, those, I know exactly what you're All about. three yeah. of those male teams got in trouble for gross things that they said about their the f- women on the at the school or on the other team. There was an amazing op-ed by the women of the Harvard soccer team responding to what it meant for them to see their friends say all these horrific things about them, you know, sexualizing them. This was two years ago. This is the same, you know, Kavanaugh kept telling us that he went to Yale. Like, we all know he right, yelled yeah. about how Yale was the number one law school. Like, that this was the, the there's this idea that class somehow keeps you out of bad behavior. That, like, because you're at an Ivy League school or you go to a prep school, that somehow you couldn't do these bad things. And I just wanted to remind everyone, two years ago, we had three major top-level universities in this country where male sports teams got in major trouble for the sexist, horrific things that they said about women on their campus. So the idea that that wasn't happening in the early 1980s, I just like... I just couldn't no, believe that he wanted that, us to believe that. And people do the, believe it. <laughs> the idea that you, you couldn't be a rapist because you went to Yale, which is like what I he know. was saying, is just like, or because you played football. I was like, what? Like, what bubble? Like, and it, th- th- this is all what it is. He has grown up in this bubble where he's been shielded from consequences for any of his actions. And, you know, when he was up there and giving his testimony, he, that, you know, I mean, it looked at times like he was throwing like a toddler like tantrum. Do you know what I mean? Like yes, a person being a person being confronted with consequences for the first time in their life, you know? And it was it was absolutely it was just an alarming display of privilege. And one of the things that keeps getting me, getting to me, is and this we can tie into a lot of the stories we're telling. But I think about women when and I, I don't want to just say 
say women, any survivors when they come forward, because I want to include male survivors and gender nonconforming survivors, because this is gendered violence does not just impact women. <laughs> you know, I know that's something you say a lot, Jess, too, you know, like we use the phrase gender violence, but it's all within kind of this patriarchal system. But that very much impacts men as well. A statistic that Jess brings up all the time is that, you know, men are more likely to be abused than they are to be, you know, wrongly accused of it. Yeah, falsely accused of it. And that's so often lost in all of this. But it was, you know, when when survivors come forward, the way they are scrutinized that if anything they say from the moment they come forward, even if it's right after the assault, when they're, you know, in the throes of trauma, you know, all the way through the prosecution, any sort of inconsistency in their story, any sort of inconsistency, because I don't want to say lies, often the way that memory works, it's it's not right out lies when the survivors are saying it, because their memory shifts of the actual account. But you know, that is just used to discredit and discredit and discredit every single other thing they say, even if it's about something that's fairly insignificant. Whereas, you know, we saw Kavanaugh lie, I mean, just straight out lie about so many small things. And yet we're supposed to believe him about the biggest thing. And nobody, I mean, there's, I'm not saying nobody's pointing this out. A lot of people are, but it's not making any impact on people who are supporters of him. And that's just absolutely staggering to me. And we see this all the time in both abusers and enablers, but mainly just in white, powerful men who are able to get away with a number of lies that you know, anyone coming forward to try and get justice would just never, ever, ever be allowed to get away with. I mean, I just, I started this week, last week, writing about going, doing a deep dive into the Mavericks report and into everything with Urban Meyer. And I just kept thinking about the number of times that Urban Meyer has lied to us throughout this mm-hmm. whole, this whole so experience, the, right? The official I mean, report from the official, the official report. Re- report says he lied and then basically says it's okay that he lied yeah yes that's a great point yes and so i just keep thinking about how like the amount of leeway these people are given because they're successful powerful white men is it's astonishing and any people who live within that power structure such as like Jameis winston who still gets you know has, has lied a number of times about you know he, he lied a number of times about this encounter with the uber driver that he was he, only suspended three games for can so, i add yeah. like the th- one thing about winston too that i think dovetails with kavanaugh is you know how old is winston now 23 24 something like that and people are still telling us despite how many times he's now been reported and he got in actual trouble this last time he's just immature and that he just needs time to mature and that like that that's the key here for him right like and there's so much with the kavanaugh discussion like the people who are willing to say if it did happen <laughs> it doesn't matter right because he was immature and that's what the high school boys do and blah 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 blah. and this idea that like they'll just get older and therefore less hating of women or like less dehumanizing or less even though we've t- we, feeling... we've taught them nothing yeah, we've taught right. them that they can keep getting away with this do you know what i mean and right. it's times like this i just blame society as a whole and i blame almost more than the actor itself all the people who let them get away without consequences for so long you know and it's just infuriating yeah exactly and you bring up the mavericks really made me think about one of the things, you know, so Cuban said, Mark Cuban said that he didn't know about Tardima Asuri, the CEO of the Mavericks, doing, sec- you know, sexually harassing lots of female employees for two decades. But he has admitted over and over again that he knew about Earl Sneed, the Mavs.com writer, who has nothing, the kind of privilege that um, someone like Brett Kavanaugh has, but like you said, was inside of this power structure being protected by Mark Cuban. And Cuban, so Sneed was arrested, pleaded guilty to beating up one woman and then was allowed to stay at the Mavericks. And he, and, he was and a writer then, for Mavericks.com. Yeah, right. just so people know. He was just like their in-house beat writer, essentially. Yeah. And then he got to stay on staff and ended up having a relationship with a woman on staff and ended up beating her up too. And she left and they still kept him on staff. They kept him on staff until we reported it and then finally fired him. And, and Cuban has admitted that he just believes Sneed, that he just believed him. That he thought he was a like that his version of it was believable, and that was it. 
And I keep thinking about that, that like there are just people who are like, I just believe Kavanaugh. Like, you know, I feel bad for Ford, but like, I just believe him. It's like there's no and there's no sense to that outside of we live in this system that makes it so those men are believable, really, no matter what they say. I've written about this a lot. And it's it's terrifying to actually come to the reality that people you love or the types of people you interact with on a daily basis are capable of being abusive in these ways because we've been conditioned to believe it is the other. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whether yeah, it's, great you know, point. Great point. it's these evil people. And so, I, you know, I understand why it's hard for people to come to terms with this. Do you know what I mean? Why it's hard for a Mark Cuban to believe that this guy that he's taken under his wing, you know what I mean? Like an Earl Sneed, that he's, you know, it's just such a nice guy that he's mentoring, that he wants to help out, you know, that he's decided to give a, give a leg up to that, you know, it's hard. He doesn't want to believe that this guy, it's easier for him to believe that a woman is just out to, you know, that this is an ex-girlfriend situation, a a bitter ex-girlfriend. You know what I mean? That is more comfortable to believe for someone like you don't have to do as much it's easier and it doesn't kind of shake your core of you know the the way you've grown up with and you know it doesn't make you have to look closer at the people around you (laughs) and think you know have i been judging these people wrong all along and i think you know that's why like people when people are defending kavanaugh in this way i just think they're just so afraid that either they've done something similar or someone else has done something similar in their lives. And it's just, it's just easier for them to believe that this is a, a partisan conspiracy, you know, that this is, that, that fits much more comfortably into their worldview than the fact that Brett Kavanaugh tried to rape a woman when he was a drunk teenager and has never faced any consequences for that. Like that is much harder to believe than the alternative. And I think like that to me is just kind of what we're seeing throughout the sports world and throughout the rest of the world is it's what you were saying earlier really stuck a chord with me, Jess. It was that, you know, we're all worried about what's going to happen to men in this world, but everyone forgets that about the women, right? Like they just forget about the women. And, you know, Mark Cuban in the Mavericks thing, you know, he said, well, I just was worried about Earl, but he wasn't worried about his female employee. Do you know what I mean? Like he wasn't, that wasn't in his, his worldview. He was more concerned about the small possibility that it's just a very statistically unlikely possibility that Earl Sneed had been falsely accused and then pled guilty to this than he was about the much larger and more realistic possibility that Earl Sneed did this once and he will do this again. Right. And and the work that goes into that reality is just so much more intense. Like you would actually have to do the uncomfortable thing, which is fire him and tell him why. And we often find this with like, that's real. Like, he he knows Sneed, and they really have to, like, they would have had to have a really difficult conversation, and Cuban would have had to make a hard choice, I guess. I mean, I guess it's a hard choice when you know them. But, you know, it, there's, like, way lesser version of this we see a lot with sports fans, right? They don't want to hear about these stories because they just don't even want to do the work to figure out how to continue to love their sport or their team if there's a guy on the pitch or the field or whatever, who probably has harmed somebody else, right? They don't even want to do like the basic work of figuring out how to make sense of that. And I'm thinking here, and I just want to make sure that we say something about this because it's also a big deal this week. We had Addison Russell of the Cubs. I think it's his ex-wife who has now come forward and I don't know how much detail she's told of the ex- of the abuse, um, but she has now come forward to say that he did abuse her and um, repeatedly. And the Cubs are trying to figure it out. And we've had the same sort of thing with the Cubs where no one wants to say <laughs> one thing or the other. How can anyone know anything? They're all just going to wait until someone tells them what to think. And then the other big story that I, I'm sure, I'm sure what, especially once Shireen is back on the show, we will be talking about is Cristiano Ronaldo. And I'm sure that it's, we've brought it up before because this is not a news story, but a woman reported in 2009 that he raped her and he 
settled with her. And part of the settlement was that she wasn't allowed to talk about it. And she has now filed to nullify that settlement, basically. And she has told her story. Uh, You can go read it. It is really upsetting. Not only what she says that he did, but what he apparently has said he did to her in some court documents, a, a questionnaire that he filled out around the settlement. He basically admits to it. It's really difficult to read. And you just know, like, I really have no sense. And Lindsay and I were talking about this before the show. But like, I really have no sense if this will be a story, if people will care at all, because they just don't want to do the work that it takes to re- like reconcile all of this to possibly not watch him play soccer anymore. Right? Like, give that up in their own lives. As little work as that actually is, people don't even want to do that. So I don't know. I just I feel like I'm just ranting at this point. But Doing the work is exhausting. We're exhausted all the time. (laughs) Yes. It's so, true. like, you know, I mean, it's horrible. And I still love sports. And Me I too. still watch. What's wrong and I with watch, <laughs> I watch problematic people all the time. I root for problematic people. And I'm constantly reckoning with these things. And I think that's the story here. But I think what gets me about so many of these of what we're seeing, the thread that kind of ties this together is that these survivors that we see coming forward have dealt with these abuses every day since they happen, right? It is constantly with them in a way that it's not for the abuser. And and I still want to believe in a world. And I've heard some stories recently about people having people who, you know, did bad things to them in the past, reaching out in the wake of the Me Too movement and saying, look, I've been thinking about this. I'm really sorry. Like, I... I was wrong. I didn't understand at the time why what I was doing was wrong, but it was wrong, you know, and and giving them that sort of validation. And I, I believe in that work. And I believe that there is a space for that. But that is so often not at all what we're seeing. You know, I don't know where it leaves us. You know, I left this week feeling more than ever, like, we're getting further away from where we want to go. And I I think logically, I know that's a lie. I just think the problem is that progress, unrooting our societal norms in this area is going to take so much work, and it's going to feel worse before it gets better. Because we're ripping off and exposing so many wounds that people have just been comfortable ignoring for so long. So it's just going to keep getting, it's going to feel like it's getting worse. But I think that what Dr. Ford did on Thursday is going to help so many women. I wrote this week, I for the first time wrote publicly about, you know, my assault and the fact that I'm a survivor as well. And I've never publicly talked about that on this podcast or in writing. And I just, I honestly didn't know how to write about what Dr. Ford was doing without tying it to me because it's so intimately personal. And I I wrote this in my piece, we'll link it in the show notes. But you know, I said, you know, look, our details are not at all the same. But there are just there's so many bits and pieces that I, I recognize in the way she's dealing with this and in the way that she's reacting in these moments. And it was, I thought what she did was heroic. I mean, you know, I, I wrote this, I said, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you every detail about what my assault was like. And I'm not going to tell you that, you know, that's not the point of this. And, and nobody's going to make me do that. Do you know what I mean? My abuser was not a rich, powerful white man who is, you know, has is about to get a lifetime appointment. You know what I mean? I don't have to come forward with all these details in order to try and protect others. Honestly, it's a weird place of privilege, you know, to be like I what she did, what she decided to do for all of us is remarkable. And what Addison Russell's ex-wife is doing by by coming forward, what Christian Ronaldo's, the woman he allegedly raped, what she's doing right now in speaking up and saying, I want to know this settlement. I've never felt right about it. I want this all to be public and I want to find some sort of justice. 
what we're seeing across society, what we're seeing right now in the Catholic Church with all the the survivors coming forward there, with the Ohio State old wrestling program, Mm -hmm. you know, with all those male survivors coming forward. The Nassar survivors, the gymnasts. The The Nassar survivors, the gymnasts. I mean, it's just everywhere. It is moving in a positive direction. It just feels, it's just what's so devastating is that it takes these public showcases of trauma to even move forward an inch. And I think that's that it just don't we reach a tipping point at one time where we don't have to have these people be re-traumatized in these ways, where it doesn't take 200 Nassar survivors speaking up at a victim impact statements to make national headlines, where it doesn't take Dr. Ford sitting through this testimony to get any semblance of, you know, be credibility. Like when do we reach this tipping point where we don't where survivors don't have to jump through these Let's just say it hoops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And shout out to Anita Hill in all of this. I've thought about her. We all have obviously been thinking a lot about her because of Dr. Ford. But, you know, I'm I'm sad. My God, I went to therapy yesterday and it was just a lot of crying. And there's a lot to process about this last week. But one thing that I keep thinking about is the long game. And Anita Hill is how I keep thinking about it. Ultimately, he's still there. Clarence Thomas is still a justice on the Supreme Court. But the fact that she did what she did in 1991, like you can draw a direct through line to Me Too, that we have Me Too because of Anita Hill. And I really do wonder what that, what the through line from Dr. Ford will be. And that I try to be hopeful about that. I do want to say one last thing, especially building off of your point about, you know, Spectacles of Trauma, one of our flamethrowers, underscore M-U-H-K-U-H on Twitter, Mucka, I guess, wrote this tweet that I've been thinking about, quote, I'm struck today at how our sports and triumphs are too boring to watch, but our trauma sometimes turns into national spectacle. That's a sad thought, but also a very powerful one about which women we're willing to watch and which ones we find entertainment in. And it feels very fitting here on Burn It All Down to bring that up. You know, I just think it, it just ties into that's just part of such this larger conversation of when do women's sports make national headlines regularly when they're in peril? Do you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. when they're confronted yes, with these point. big displays of sexism? Do you know what I mean? Like how many times is the New York Times written WNBA in jeopardy, you know, peace right, or, right. you know, a woman speaks out against sexism, you know, peace uh, versus how much they'll actually cover the sport itself just as a sport you know and then that ties back to the women's sports as a shield and i think back to the the sky blue stuff when you had the governor of new jersey saying well i purchased this women's soccer team to inspire my daughter because i want her to know that like women can do anything men can do and then he like didn't give his these women running water to <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it does all fit together in this way of just how we view how we view women, how we view survivors, and how we kind of keep these power structures. I don't really want to get really far into this. Okay, there's there's two more things I want to bring up. One is is someone who's covered these Nasser hearings in, on Capitol Hill and these USOC ah, hearings. Yes, tell us about how that. How <laughs> many of these? You know, the the big talk about those hearings has been the bipartisan nature. You know, it's been Republicans and Democrats coming together to try and hold sexual abusers within USOC and enablers and, you know, Michigan State and gymnastics to hold these people accountable. They've sat down, you know, they've sat across so many Nassar survivors and talked with them one-on-one. There's just been all of this grandstanding. And then so many of those senators are now voting for Kavanaugh. And it's just, it just makes you want to just ram your head up against a wall, honestly. Yeah, like it's just, right it's out. just <laughs> so infuriating because it just, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And it's so disheartening. And then, you know, another thing is where does the media fit into all this? There, you know, there are a couple of things here. Number one being, I remember someone pointing out that all of the images from these hearings on the wire services were taken by white men. Like the only women working in these hearings were from like specific papers. So then any, all the wire images, the AP and the Getty from these hearings, we were all literally seeing these images through the lens of a white man, which is just kind of staggering. Yes. 
And, you know, a friend of the show, Robert Silverman, this week wrote a big piece about Barstool Sports for the Daily Beast. And it reignited the Barstool conversation in a way that was very obviously, and Robert is the first to, you know, point this out in a way that it hasn't when any woman has written about it. <laughs> I mean, his, his piece was very, very well done, but it was staggering the amount of people, Will Leach, you know, you know, people from some people from Deadspin who don't usually write about this, you know, it's just been staggering the number, the kind of traction this has gotten. And it just kind of points when, you know, when a white man at a more mainstream outlet points out that something's wrong here, all of a sudden people pay attention in a way they don't, they don't anyways. But look, there's also been a lot of women from within Barstool who have been attacking me and been attacking others for claiming that Barstool is sexist and, you know, writing things now about how much they like working at Barstool. And, and I just keep thinking, I, I'm glad that there that you like it there. Yeah, like I'm glad you feel yeah. Yeah. supported as an individual. And I am glad. And you can treat individual women well and still be sexist overall and still be contributing to the the diminishment of women overall. And I, I don't know how to put it exactly. But I just think it's kind of worth mentioning. And I think of all the you know, women who who have been supporting Kavanaugh. And I, I don't know, but there's something Lindy West, I sorry, I'm really rambling right now. There's something Lindy West, the writer wrote years ago, in The Guardian, and she was it was this female comedian had been, you know, attacking her for being fat and, you know, for her weight. And she said something along the lines of, I'm going to keep fighting, even for you, because one day, you might gain weight or someone you love might gain weight. And I still want the world to be a better place for you if that happens to you or for your daughter if that happens to her. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I am still fighting for you. I understand that you don't agree with me right now and that you are in a different place in your life right now. But I'm going to still keep fighting for this because I think it is what's best for women overall. And that ultimately, my hope is that you will benefit from this greater fight one day, you know? Right, right, exactly. That's wonderful. You did great. There was no rambling. That was perfect. (laughs) I think I started on five different threads there, but okay, I got, I got, I got somewhere eventually. This is clearly something that we will continue forever to be discussing on this podcast. So we will absolutely be coming back to this topic, and I look forward to those conversations. Me too. Up next, I sat down with Mary Carrillo two weeks ago when she was here in Austin. Carrillo is a former tennis player, a wonderful tennis commentator, an Emmy-winning reporter for HBO Real Sports, and she has also covered 14 Olympics. If you'd like to hear the full interview, become a patron of the show. Here is a shorter edited version of our talk. Okay, so how did you originally get into tennis? I played tennis at the Douglas Club. It's a tiny little town in Queens, New York. And I started playing because I had been on the swimming team and my ears were getting terrible, the swimmer's ear. And then one day I saw this beautiful family in cable knit sweaters and creamy white shorts. And it looked beautiful and elegant and warm. And so I started playing (laughs) tennis. That's a very true story. I'll never forget the Cernas came out and played. And so my dad was a very good athlete. We joined the tennis part of the Douglasson Club. And at the same time that that was happening, the McEnroe family from up the street joined the Douglasson Club. We actually had a very, it became a real tennis town. The, the courts, there were only five courts, two hard courts, three clay courts. And in the beginning, it, what, they weren't crowded. And then when John McEnroe started becoming John McEnroe, mm. it became very big. And we had tournaments and tennis ladders. and Oh, wow. Yeah. And it became a, a real tennis town and a real tennis club. It had been a swimming club. Okay. And it became a tennis club. And my parents are 88 and 92 years old. My dad still plays there about four or five times a week. Oh, wow. With the old guys, he calls them. They're in their 60s. My father's 92. <laughs> yeah, I'm just playing with the old guys. I love so that's how I started playing. And then, I mean, it became this hotbed. Usually, like when I was growing up, I would read tennis magazines, what anything I could find. And you either had to be in Florida playing on clay right. courts or in California or Texas was big too for hard courts. But then all of a sudden, New York became a hmm. very decent address for tennis. 
Like, what do you love about tennis? I happen to love all racket sports. I mm. love the geometry. I think a racket as a tool, whether it's a badminton racket or a tennis racket or a ping pong paddle, or I happen to think that's a beautiful tool. Hmm. And I like that there's a net. I like that it's, you know, one-on-one, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically, yeah. that you can... My What I love about tennis and what I deeply resent about on-court coaching and things like that, that I feel are trying to ruin my the very integrity, the fiber of my <laughs> sport, I like that you can be, more than any other sport, you can be tall, you can be short, you can be fast or slow, you can have great hands, you can have hands of stone. You can play it with any body type. You can play with any kind of mentality, any kind of mindset. You want to be patient, you'll win a lot of matches. You want to be aggressive, you'll win a lot. of, Or you can lose a lot of matches the same way. That is what I genuinely like more about tennis than anything. Any kind of person with any kind of mentality and sensibility can play it and make it their own. Yeah. I think that's really... I don't know that there are a lot of sports that lend themselves to that kind of creativity and freedom. Yeah. No, I agree. What was the transition like? For you, when you retired, you almost went immediately into commentating. I always hung around writers okay. when I when I, I was always, and I was kind of quotable as a player. I would lose a match, and the WTA or the Virginia Slims would say, "Can you go in there and?" Okay, so and, you've always been good with sort of turn of phrase. Well, I mean, but I was a Weisenheimer because I would always have just lost to somebody badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would describe the carnage and like in a. I'm there like, why do you want me to go in and talk about it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so, and I always liked writing. My brother's a writer. So I hung around them and I thought it was, I was always interested in how they were describing something or what they were concentrating on or what match they decided to write about. And then TV came around, which at the time when I was offered my first TV job, it was only a couple of tournaments a year. USA Network was just starting to show women's tennis. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really a, a job. I mean, it was just something I did. But then they started covering more tennis, and then I was allowed to do men's tennis, Mm. which was a big jump. And then I switched over to ESPN, and they had Davis Cup. And originally, I wasn't allowed, you'll love this, I wasn't allowed to cover Davis Cup, not because ESPN didn't want me to. The United States Tennis Association didn't want me to because they came up with some cockamamie rule. They wanted a male commentator? They wanted someone who had been a Davis Cup player. Oh, of course. (laughs) Of course. So, of course... I wasn't among those. Yeah. <laughs> who played never, Davis. You're never going to meet that criteria. Right. Yeah. And and I have to say, I've had a lot of good luck over the years. This guy named Brian Williams was the producer at ESPN at the time. And to his great credit, he said to the USGA, if she can't cover the Davis Cup tie, I don't want to either. He like delivered an ultimatum to the US. And they said, all right, what the hell? And so I did. A, and I love Davis Cup. Yeah. I love Fed Cup. So I can't tell you how often... Like a guy thinks he's giving me a compliment, a viewer, when he says, I like listening to you because you don't sound like a girl. Your voice is deep. You ever get that nonsense? Well, yeah. Like, and they think we, they're... We are five women who run a podcast. <laughs> you know what? I retract we, my question. We've certainly heard about our voices from people. Right? I mean, so that so you ju- you get judged first and foremost. They're not even listening to the content. Right. They're listening to the sound of it. Right. Yes. Do you have... I'm sure you have plenty, but do you have like a favorite memory of a match that you called? Like when you think back on it, you get a, that thrill of thinking about being there and witnessing it. Oh boy, I'm lucky because I've covered Davis Cup, you know, the team competitions mm-hmm. when the whole place is just rocking. There was a, a 1991 Davis Cup tie between the U.S. and France, and it was in Lyon, France, which is a gorgeous mm-hmm. city anyway. And Yannick Noah was the captain, and he brought together all these old guys who weren't supposed to beat the young Pete Sampras, young Andre Agassi, that we were supposed to have the team. And the place, I can still remember the ground, the shaking. At that, that was one of the best sporting events I'd ever been to. I like, but I've covered, now I'm elderly. I've covered, <laughs> I've covered great. Yeah. The, there was a Wimbledon between Lindsay Davenport and Venus Williams. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay had match point and lost. Match point Wimbledon. Yeah. It was one of still one of the most unforgettable matches I've ever called. And the funny thing is, when the matches are great, I don't remember anything that I said. Right. Necessarily. Because if it's great, you just let the director cut cameras. I wanted to ask you about your Olympic coverage, in part because whenever, especially friends of mine that aren't tennis people, when I say, talk about Mary Carilla, the video that I always send them. The badminton. This is the badminton video. <laughs> 
it's just such joy. That is the most ridiculous um, video. It's been that was at the Athens Olympics, two thousand four. Jessica, yeah. that was at the Athens Olympics, and it's called the people call it the badminton rant. It's really a, a rant about motherhood. Yes, which I relate <laughs> to a lot. It's just I feel like part of it is because your storytelling is so clear. I mean. When you say Christopher Burr, it's always Christopher Burr. Like just the detail <laughs> with which you deliver. But anyway, I it I is mean, always it, it continues to be Christopher Burr. I'm yes, sure of it. Yes, and so for as much as when I I always say, well, she does tennis commentating and she's great at it. And but then I'm like, but here's this video. <laughs> That's the thing that I end up showing to people. So you've been but you've been covering the Olympics for Pyeongchang was my 14th. That's amazing. Pyeongchang was my 14th. The first first one I I did was Alberville. Okay. So one of the things I was wondering about is to cover something like the Olympics, the learning curve, the amount of information that you would have to know versus tennis, which you grew up playing, your knowledge base is pretty much set. It's the only sport I'm fluent in. Yeah. So what is that? (laughs) What was that like for you to go into Olympic coverage. I loved it. My attitude has always been, because I really like, I love sports. Mm-hmm. I love the athletic heart. Yeah. And I love traveling. Or I want to see the planet, as much of the planet as I can before yeah. I'm gone. And so it got to the point where this was CBS many years ago. I was, I was still pretty much a kid. They asked me if I wanted to, to do some, uh, cover some skiing. I mean, they're like, absolutely. Like, there was no question. Like, like there wasn't any moment where I thought to myself, what the hell do I know about skiing? Did you know anything about skiing? I skied as a kid, but okay. no, I didn't know anything about skiing. <laughs> so I was the bottom of the hill, the ski reporter. Okay. And that allowed me, and I, I say yes to every, my so whole attitude. was to the interview them when they come after they've skied down the hill. When they ski down okay. the hill. That was my assignment. Okay. Fine. I can do that. And my <laughs> attitude was, if I'm not any good at it, they'll tap me on the shoulders and get me gone. Like, yeah. I wasn't afraid of that. Like my attitude, I almost always say yes. These people aren't geniuses who are doing it around you. I mean, and you'll learn if you have any kind of intellectual yeah. curiosity or any kind of sporting awareness, you will probably catch on. I started doing so. Then that's how I got my assignment for Alberville, and then they started using me for gymnastics, and then they started. All of a sudden, now I'm talking about figure skating. It's challenging, and it's. Fun and if you're sitting next to somebody like Rowdy Gaines, it's yeah. amazing. And you just smile because sports are that's what sports can do. Yeah. It's amazing stuff. It really is. So one of your other jobs is <laughs> what else do I do? You, well, you won an Emmy for work on HBO Real Sports. That's a nice show. That's a great show. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as someone, as a reporter myself, a journalist, there are certain stories that I've reported on that I still think a lot about, and yes. I'll think, I should check back in, see how that person's doing. Yes. What is one of those stories for you? That well, you that still... the one you're talking about, the Hoyts, Rick and Dick Hoyt, father, the son. Father, yeah. Yes. The kid was born. This is a kid who could have been treated as a vegetable. Yeah, mm-hmm. never, and, and instead he graduated from college. And your dad famously pushed him in the marathons, marathons, ultra marathons, triathlons. I mean, it's it's an incredible bond between father and son, mm-hmm. and it was a beautiful story. And we actually updated that story twice. Oh wow! Yeah, in fact, a couple of Boston marathons ago, it was going to be the father's Dick's last marathon because that. he was getting old, his back was bad, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And Rick still is pushed by friends of theirs and stuff. Those are the kind of stories that resonate. The late, great Frank DeFord, he too was a correspondent for Real Sports from the beginning. I joined the second year. Frank was there from the first year. He did stories like that too. I mean, Real Sports does a lot of good work, investigative journalism, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. paper trails, all that kind of stuff. My assignments tend to be, and which are kind of what Frank's were, more profiles, quieter stories that we get to shine a light on sometimes people you'd never even consider that they could be athletic, let alone be championing some big cause. So I've had a lot of nice stories like that over the years. One of my final questions, I've tried, I've looked around and it doesn't seem like you have much social media. I have zero presence. Please tell me about how great that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I have z- Did you I, ever have it? And never. And how, everybody I work for wants me to have. How have you resisted? I, like why? Because it looks terrible to okay. me. It's for, it seems like such a time suck, first of all, which I don't have time for. And I know that I would get very grouchy in a hurry. Yeah. And I would write things that I mean entirely too much. When say, oh, I didn't mean, no, I would always mean it. 
<laughs> which I get myself in enough trouble on national television. Do I really want to have a back and forth argument with some mook who's just trying to get me lit up? I mean, I am on it. I watch, I follow you. I follow, I'm on Twitter secretly, covertly. Oh, Jim Courier taught me how to do that. That's smart. That's smart because there is so much information out there and I'm mm -hmm. very politically aware. So I go from, you know, following tennis to following, you know, the latest horror in Washington, but I keep my distance because I just know it would be a bad idea. And what we are told is, you know, stay out of politics. If you go on social media, you know, Martina Navratilova has never written a word about tennis. <laughs> she is a great dear friend of mine. Yes. I happen to agree with her politics, but you don't follow Martina Navratilova to find out who's winning over on court right. 18. Right. She's not going to be reporting that. Right. She's going to be, and I happen to love that about her because she swings for the fences, right. you know, and she uses her influence, her power, her voice. And, but she gets all kinds of crazy hate mail, hate tweets, hate, you know, I don't feel the pull to be a part of that. Well, thank you so much for all of your time, Mary. Oh, thank you for pleasure. being on Burn It All Down. It's a terrific, it's a very good listen. I'm very happy you wanted me to be a part of it. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call the burn pile. This whole episode's a burn pile. Who are we kidding? <laughs> We're going to pile up the things that we've hated this week, other things that we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Lindsay, I'll let you go first. All right, I'll be quick here. This week, Ohio State released a teaser poster for its <laughs> game for its game against Penn State. Just let that settle in right now. And you know, it's a whiteout game, so I and it's on the road, and I, or you know what I mean. Like it, it, the whole point was to for everyone to wear white. They're called whiteout games, and so I get that that's what the poster was referring to. All the trolls who are in my mentions, I'm not stupid, but the poster itself was one Ohio State football player in the middle of this poster with a white background. And he had his finger held up to his mouth. Shh. Yeah. <laughs> I think, what did it just say? Quiet or something silence. like that? Silence. silence. Thank you. That's what it said. It said silence. And with everything that is going on at Ohio State right now, and Mike, let's mention not just in its football program, not just with Urban Meyer and Smith, uh, but also, you know, with reckoning its father's wrestling program in the 80s, the sexual abuse and the diving program. And why in the world would you decide to release this poster? I'm not stupid. I don't think they made this thinking about domestic violence and sexual assault. But isn't that the problem they that they're should've. not thinking? Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. <laughs> I mean, it didn't take a lot of us long at all once we saw the image to be like, what? So obviously they had no one on staff. Who went, what? <laughs> That's a problem. Like, maybe this is like not the best optics right now. And I mean, optics aren't everything, but there's something. Let's just throw silence onto the burn pile. <laughs> burn. <laughs> ah, okay, so it will sound like I made up the story that I'm about to tell you, but I didn't. This is just the world we live in, everybody. Last week, in a video released to the entire school, Jared Hensley, the assistant principal at Saudi Daisy High School near Chattanooga, Tennessee, and announced that he was banning athletic shorts. He explained why by saying, quote, and I am seriously verbatim quoting this guy here, <laughs> if you want to blame someone, blame the girls, because they pretty much ruin everything. They ruin the dress code. Well, ask Adam. Look at Eve. That's really all you've got to get to. You can go back to the beginning of time. Jared Hensley, everybody. He actually said that on camera, and then they published that video. He was sure. I know. <laughs> high school, high school assistant principal. He was immediately put on suspension once there was pushback. And of course, the superintendent said, quote, the sentiments expressed do not align with the values of Hamilton County schools. But after this week, in particular, I believe Hensley's sentiment is a much more popular one than lots of people would be willing to admit. Obviously not Hensley. He was happy to say all that stuff. I mean, the reason that there are dress codes which just disproportionately focus on girls' clothing. It has nothing to do with girls. It has to do with a fucked-up culture that sexualizes young girls and blames them for being distracting rather than focusing on or even recognizing that the real problem are the gross ideas and behaviors of boys and men that we normalize in so many ways. So I just want to burn that. Burn it all down. <laughs> burn. <laughs> burn. Jesus. <laughs> 
All right. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Women of the Week segment. So first up this time, we have some congratulations. We want to give a shout out to all the teams competing in the FIVB Volleyball Women's World Championship. In particular, we want to recognize Cameroon and Kenya, both of which won their first matches in the tournament, which are the first wins by African teams ever at the World Championships. By the time you all hear this, we'll know the champions of the FIBA Women's Basketball World Cup. The finalists are the United States and Australia. Congratulations to both teams. Congratulations to Lulea Hockey, the champions of the Swedish Women's Hockey League, who beat the National Women's Hockey League champions, the Metropolitan Riveters, in the first ever Champions Cup this past weekend. A great kickoff to the NWHL season that starts in a few days. And finally, to the Scottish Women's National Soccer Team, all of whom will be able to train full-time for next year's World Cup after a funding boost for the Scottish government. All right, but now we have honorable mentions. Because women are just really killing it right now. So Hajra Khan, the captain of Pakistan women's national football team, whose TED Talk about her experiences with anxiety and therapy is now available. Spain's Ana Carrasco, who became the first ever female motorcycle road racing world champion by winning the World Supersport 300 title this weekend. Adwa Arifi and Reham Al-Anizan, who might be the first two women in Saudi Arabia Football Association's history to hold management positions. They are on the ticket with candidate Kusai Al-Fawaz. We will keep you posted. Carolyn Ouellette, the four-time Olympic gold medalist who has announced her retirement from Canada's national women's ice hockey team. What a career. Parm Gill, the founder of local amateur club Guru Nanak Ladies FC in the UK, who's been awarded the prestigious 2018 UEFA Grassroots Gold Award for Best Leader for her dedicated service in trying to give girls and women from the local Sikh community greater opportunities to play football. Tish Guerin, who was hired by the Carolina Panthers last week. The Carolina Panthers had a good week last week. Hired by the Carolina Panthers last week as their director of player wellness, making her one of the first in-house psychological clinicians in the NFL. And then we want to Give some shout-outs to the NWSL women. Portland Thorns FC midfielder Lindsay Horan, who is the 2018 National Women's Soccer League's Most Valuable Player. Portland Thorns FC goalkeeper Adriana Franch, who, for the second straight year, has been voted Goalkeeper of the Year. Abby Erseg of the North Carolina Courage for Defender of the Year. And Amani Dorsey of Sky Blue FC, who is Rookie of the Year. Whew! All right! So... I guess, are we going to do a drum roll? <laughs> Just the two of us? <laughs> All right. <laughs> there we go. Our badass woman of the week is Australia's Jessica Fox, who won her sixth individual canoe slalom title, successfully defended her 2017 K1 World Crown, and became the most successful individual paddler in the history of the sport at the 2018 ICF Canoe Slalom World Championships in Rio. That is indeed badass. All right. Thank goodness for women. Okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) come on. All right. So, let's do the what's good. There's got to be something, Lindsay. You got to have something good. Okay. My friend last night had her 30th birthday party, and the theme of the party was Michelle Pfeiffer and Jeff Goldblum costumes. (laughs) characters and so everyone had to come dressed yeah casey's the best uh that's my friend casey quinlan happy birthday casey i don't think you listen to this because you don't like sports but i love you anyways so everyone came dressed as their favorite jeff goldblum or michelle pfeiffer character i i'll be honest i like everything i do in my life i put this together last minute so i just (laughs) i went as jeff goldblum and independence day you know with the plaid and the little chain and the white tank top and you know most of the other girls went in like really fancy dresses and looked really hot but I was really killing it but anyways it was just really fun it was you know it's just a time that like you just really you got to rely on friends and loved ones right now and people with similar political views it has not been a time that I've been dying to speak to a few members of my family who I love very dearly and who I do address these subjects with but not right this second (laughs) I just can't do it right now so you know thank goodness for friends yeah that's good it was fun last night we showed our son cool runnings 
for the first time and he just loved it. Like it was really, really fun <laughs> to watch that movie alongside him. He liked it so much that when I got up this morning, he was watching it again. <laughs> so that was great. Oh. And then next week is my deadlifting competition. I don't know if you all remember from last year. So I'm doing it again. Uh, this last week, I set another personal record. I deadlifted 95 kilograms, which is about 209 pounds. And so this upcoming Saturday, I will be shooting for 100 kilograms of the competition. That's about 220 oh, pounds. Shit. My trainer has instructed me to imagine myself 100 times this week picking up the 100K uh, successfully. And she told me that I needed to pick out my outfit. And so that I'm imagining myself in my outfit while I'm doing it. And I will be wearing my burn it all down tank top, which, you know, plug for our merch. (laughs) Link for the merch is in the episode description. So click on it, get your own. So next Saturday, I'll be trying to lift 100K and I will be wearing my burn it all down matchbook tank top. So I'll definitely have pictures of that. That's incredible. I cannot wait. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. And you should. You should subscribe. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you all. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. And please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. It is really important. The ratings help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One more thank you to our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burnitalldown. That's it. Thanks for joining Lindsay and me. Until next week. Oh.